This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a special episode of the Mikado and Manning television podcast. We have a special guest today. Joining us is Patrick Walters, an executive producer with Seesaw Films. Now, um, he's been looking after a couple of shows. Andrew and I have both been chatting enthusiastically about in recent weeks, both uh, Heartstopper and The Essex Serpent. So um, we've got, we're going to talk about both those shows in a bit of detail. So I've got quite a few questions I'd be I'd like answers to about things that happen in both those series and some oh, of the wow. challenges, some of the challenges they faced in making them. But first of all, welcome, Patrick, and tell us what brings you to Australia this visit. Thank you, and yeah, it's lovely to chat to you both. I'm um, I'm an executive producer for Seesaw Films, as you say, and we've got a, a Sydney office as well as a London office. I work out of the London office usually. Um, but I've worked with my Australian colleagues a lot over the years that I've been at Seesaw, and currently I'm here doing a writer's room uh, with Australian writers on a show that has Australian writing uh, talent behind it, but is set in the UK. So it's a sort of specific Seesaw special, but quite well-placed uh, to bring that sort of show off. You, you've got, um, I mean, it's, it's an argument that... Um, so, I mean, Seesaw's got an amazing film catalogue as well as its television properties, but um, they're, having a, they're having an amazing year. Um, the, these two series in particular, The Essex Serpent and Heartstopper, uh, they've both sort of been released quite, quite close together. But I, yeah. which, which came first in the production cycle? They were actually pretty similarly... Uh, yeah, they were on similar timelines, actually. I think that that was because of COVID. We'd been developing both of them, and it was looking like the Essex Serpent would have gone before Heartstopper. But actually, as it happened, COVID shutdowns meant everything that was about to go into production went onto a hiatus. And then when those things were finally ready, when the you know lockdowns stopped and, and, and there was production um, able to happen again, there, there was a bit of a logjam and everything else got back up at the same time. So, yeah, we uh, Essex Serpent happened just before. It did start shooting just a little bit before Heartstopper, but they were shooting at the same time for a lot of their uh, shoot days. How uh, incredibly pleased are you with the response? Let's talk about Heartstopper first. Mm-hmm. You know, the, that show dropped on Netflix you couldn't miss reading about it. It was all over social media, like straight away, so many people tweeting about how much they loved the show. How did it feel to you as a creator to see that sort of response? It was amazing. Uh, it was really, yeah, really extraordinary to feel the outpouring of love because it was a show that we'd made, you know, hoping that we might get a reception like that and people might take it to their hearts because we loved it. And we cared, you know, everyone who was involved in making it cared so deeply about it. But it did feel like a small show, you know, it had a modest budget. Um, The graphic novel that it was based on was gaining in popularity as we were making it. Um, But it certainly wasn't at the level that we've experienced in the last month as it's come out, which is just a kind of uh, such huge global excitement. I've, I've never experienced anything like it in my sort of producing career. And it's incredibly satisfying and very moving. It's overwhelming, you know. I've, I've been all of, up and down around the houses with it. You know, it's exciting. It's a little bit, like, emotionally draining. Um, 
but it's uh, it's yeah, it's brilliant. Can you hard stop? Button. Sorry, James, go ahead. Yeah, the I, I was wondering about that um, that commission because this was a was this always going to be a Netflix um, series, or or did you get involved first and we're going to make it and then uh, was sold a bit later on? What happened was uh, I met Alice, who uh, drew and wrote the graphic novel, and I was like, come and make that as a drama series with Seesaw Films, and we'll help you produce it, and you should stay really involved, and we'll go out and pitch it to broadcasters and streamers and find the right home for it. Um, and so we did that part of the process first. And then when we were kind of collaborating on how to pitch it and where to pitch it, we realized together that Netflix felt like the number one place. And so we were very kind of, uh, we had a small bullseye where we were like, we've got to get this in front of Netflix because they'll get it into the kind of screens, phones, tablets of the young Gen Z demographic that we wanted uh, primarily to watch it and love it. Um, and yeah, so we, so we then got a meeting with some really great executives at Netflix and I took Alice with me and they met her. And they were like, oh, wow, we want to collaborate on this. This feels really different and fresh and we can totally see how it would work on Netflix. So, yeah, that was the process. Uh, I sort of am a bit of a gay TV historian and oh, yeah. it would have been unthinkable that, you know, 40, 50 years ago we'd be sitting here talking about a gay love story series set in a high school. I mean, Heartstopper for me really captures something that I think a lot of older people, you know, politicians, religious groups don't get. You know, while they scream about, you know, what's being taught in school and gender theory and all that stuff they get upset about, the kids and the kids who are watching Heartstopper are already right down with it, right? Totally. I think that's that was the reason to want to make it. We wanted to give joyful, youthful, queer representation. Uh, and I think, you know, there are shows with, you know, gay storylines in them and, and there are shows about gay people, but they tend to be more adult in their focus and sometimes to do with the, with the ideas of coming out and shame and, and all of this sort of stuff. So when we were pitching the show, we were really clear that its point of difference had to be to inspire happiness and excitement and joy in the younger demographic. Um, the sort of the LGBTQ plus kids who are coming up now and, and wanting to see themselves reflected uh, back at them by the media that they watch. And I think, you know, the reception of the show I, I put, you know, the majority down to that because it's, um, yeah, it's being taken into the hearts of young people, which is so satisfying. Um, Patrick, the and did Netflix give you, and I understand you might be able to share it because a lot of their stuff is sort of quite proprietary and they, and they, they keep some of their numbers separate, but do you get data that, that goes beyond like sitting in the top ten for any country about how well the show's performing? Um, I we haven't got any specific data yet through from them, but I think they have been releasing publicly even that there are certain amounts of millions of hours that have been watched okay. globally since its launch. So I think it was you're sitting in the top ten English language shows for them for the first three weeks of its release, and that meant that X many million hours had been watched. And I don't I can't remember the exact figures, but it was like tens of millions it felt it felt very um 
good to me. It's very hard to kind of quantify it. Uh, yeah, but certainly it was uh, seemed to be a lot of millions of people were watching it. So, yeah. Now we live in a world of international streaming. Sometimes shows with LGBT themes run afoul of censors in certain countries. How has yeah. Heartstop gone? Has any country with Netflix said, no, we're not taking that? No, I, I, we've had conversations with Netflix about this and what they wanted to do was to put it into all of their 190 territories that they go into uh, worldwide and whatever rating it gets is the rating that it gets in that country. And so sometimes, you know, in, in countries where there is that, that level of censorship that you talk about, uh, you are finding that they've got the X rating or the highest rating, even though I would say that the show is really, you know, appropriate for family viewing. Um, but the idea is that they want to get it into as many countries as possible. Um, and they don't, they, there's no self-censorship. And, they, and yeah, so, so it does go to every place that, that they, they broadcast in. Just, just following on from that, to, I, you realise what a significant investment Netflix put into making it available in all those different languages. If you ever stumble yeah. onto these sort of translation buttons and you get this, yeah. these drop-downs of amazing choices, I mean, that must be quite a process they go through. Are you, is the sort of production company involved in that at all or is that something Netflix looks after separately? Uh, they do it themselves, but what you do as the producer is you give you prepare a document for them as you deliver the show to them, which sort of explains uh, sort of specific cultural references. So, you know, if they're trying to do the subtitles or the dubbing as a character is saying, oh, I'm going to go to Nando's, which is like a very specific peri-peri uh, chicken restaurant that everyone would go to in the UK, but might not be everywhere in the world. Uh, we do a little sheet where it kind of says, this is what Nando's is and this is what this slang word means. And so they have a kind of Bible from us that kind of uh, sort of shows how things should be uh, dubbed and subbed, as it were. Once upon a time, actors didn't want to play gay roles out of fear that the public would think, think they were gay themselves. Where are we yeah. at that now in 2022? And you're dealing with young actors who maybe this is going to be their first TV role. Is there any hesitancy now or are actors like, hell yeah, it's a great project? I think that's been the really exciting thing about it uh, for me is that because we've had, you know, we're, we're making Heartstopper. It's based on this graphic novel that has lots of young fans. And we did this big open casting call. We had 10,000 applications uh, of some actors, but some non-actors. And the vast majority of them were coming to the audition with a sense of what Heartstopper was about and its inclusive message and the idea that you just want to kind of, uh, you know, uh, be in this LGBTQ plus story and you're doing it because that's exciting and it's not about, you know, anything that could ever derail your career in any way. And it's not, it's also not about us going, oh, tell us, you know, how you identify. It's just about creating a safe space as a production where you can go, this show is a queer story and it's made by queer people at its helm, you know, director, writer, myself as producer. And that's the space that we're in and come in and, and enjoy that. And, and, and that really kind of permeated, I think, the casting through to the production of it, where we, we knew it was an LGBT space. Um, and beyond that, you don't really have to ask 
any questions, you know, you're doing it in that, with that spirit. And I think that's enough, especially when you've got young, you know, young cast that you're working with too. You mentioned that cast. I'll, I'll, I'll throw you two questions here. Tell us a little yeah. bit about the, the the casting, and there's quite a lot of extras involved because some of those school scenes there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of kids up and down the corridors and things like yeah. that. And when you're watching on Netflix, it tells you there's a second season. At what stage was that commissioned? So the second season has been commissioned quite recently uh, in the last week or so. Um, and they've also commissioned a season three as well, so that's wow. very exciting. So, well yeah, we've got our work. <laughs> we've got our work cut out for <laughs> us a little bit. I'm just sort of, you know, having lots of zooms with Alice actually, and uh, talking about um, how we're going to get this thing up and running, which is incredibly exciting. Um, but yeah, so they 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 waited to see how the first season did on the service, and then we sort of entered into the normal discussions with them. But but Netflix is so. Um, excited about the show and, and the life cycle of the show that to have a double renewal has been really really exciting um and yeah i think in terms of the casting of it that was just an incredibly fun process for for me as a producer we worked really closely with our director eros who's really brilliant and our writer and creator alice um and we, because it was in COVID times, we were doing lots of Zoom auditions uh, with young actors and they were really kind of bringing all their passion and excitement for the material to us. And yeah, we, we found an incredible cast, I think. And they're, they're just absolutely exceptional actors, but we're lucky enough that they're also really lovely young people. And uh, it's always a joy hanging out with them. They love Heartstopper, the world of it, the message of it. Um, and you know, it feels like they're all great friends with each other. So it's it's a really exciting thing to be part of, both in the finished product at the end of it, which I'm very proud of, but also in the making of it, uh, which has been just one of the joys of my life, really, seeing these, you know, amazing young actors and it's such a talented crew and, and kind of the creative force behind it, um, having such a brilliant time making it. The really, really great thing about a show like Heartstopper is that, you know, there's young viewers watching that, recognising themselves maybe on the screen for the first time ever, and that show will mean so much to them for their entire lives. Is there something that you can remember seeing on TV once that made you think, wow, and, and it's always been very special in your memory? Oh, wow, yeah. I mean, lots of things. I sort of, I really enjoyed uh, shows like Six Feet Under and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, and yeah, these were the sort of things where when I was kind of a teenager seeing and, and, and kind of uh, enjoying the LGBT characters in those shows in ways where I could feel that like they were role models, they were people I liked, um, yeah. but always feeling like those shows were kind of straight shows with a little sprinkling of LGBT characters and subplots for someone like me to be invested in. And and although I love those shows, I think one of the real um, reasons that Heartstopper feels like such a moment is that it's it's not just a little sprinkling of diversity, it's true representation. You know, the majority of the characters in the show are LGBTQ+, and all of us who made it are LGBTQ+, and we're sort of going, this is our world, and we want people who are watching that and, and feel like they're part of that world to feel totally included. So it's not just a kind of, um, 
you know, one storyline in a much bigger whole, it's like, it's in every fiber of its being. Um, yeah. Before we move off Heartstopper, I've got a, a, I'll throw you a, a, a quick fire. I've got three little, little questions about the production. I've got to ask sure. you about, about, about the uh, getting Olivia Coleman for, uh, for <laughs> what do you call it? A guest role. It's almost a cameo, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was extraordinary and so um, out of the blue because we were just kind of going, well, this is a lovely part. We could probably shoot this in a couple of days, we thought. So why not think of the most perfect actor that you can um, that could bring that sort of sense of uh, gravitas to it? And on the top of everyone's list was Libby <laughs> Coleman because she just feels like that mum that you want to come out to and that she's so sort of so... Uh, so kind and so caring in so many of her performances that it just felt like a no-brainer. But never in a million years did we think, you know, it was even slightly likely. Um, but but our but our director Eros wrote her a letter, and he happened to know her a bit, so uh, he sort of explained what the role was, and she very quickly said yes to the kind of complete shock, and uh, you know we were astounded. And Al- Alice had been like. Oh, this is this is never going to happen. Uh, and so when I was able to call her up and go, "We got Olivia Coleman," it was one of those pinch yourself moments. And I did. I mean, I still until she was on set in front of me, and I was having like a conversation with her about Heartstopper. Uh, it felt unreal to that point. And then she was a complete delight over the two days that we shot with her. Uh, everyone from our like runners to the producers, the directors, everyone was sort of talking to her about their coming out story and she took it with kind of such grace and humour and kindness. Uh, she was like everyone's mum for a couple of days. Okay, and then also Stephen Fry. Yeah, Stephen Fry, similarly, that was, we, we knew we had this voice role of the headmaster and we thought, wouldn't it be fantastic to get like a really kind of notable LGBTQ plus actor in that role to just have that little nod, which is again going in, the, in in all of the little details of the show. Look, this is an LGBTQ plus show, you know, feel that in its bones. And uh, yeah, Eros and Alice and myself thought Stephen Fry would be brilliant. And he, yeah, again, quickly said, yes. I think that, that one was a little bit more understandable because it was a smaller time commitment. He could just, you know, wherever he was, we, we, we uh, got him remotely to, to deliver his lines and, and so, a little less time commitment, but it was still amazing. And, you know, fingers crossed, maybe we could, he could appear in person at some later point. You know, and, and just finally, the the drumming, the little sort of interstitial, what, what do you call that? The, but often between scenes, that sort of the, the, the drumming. Is there the any drumming story of Charlie, about that? the character? Yeah, yeah. It often fills in well, a background here and there and. Yeah, I mean, that was brilliant. We had um, Charlie in the comic is a drummer and it's sort of built into his character. So we thought, what if we could have this like percussive beat through some of these moments that are underscoring that kind of like, didum, 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 it's your heartbeat almost, to get that emotional pitch. Um, and so Eros, our director, had that, that idea. And it was, uh, I think it's really, really good in episode two when they're texting and he's drumming and it's got all of that kind of like pent up teenage excitement and energy. Um, and yeah, we did give our actor who plays Charlie, um, Joe, uh, drumming lessons. And I, but I think in the end, we did also have a drumming double for him, just for this, <laughs> you know, slightly more 
<laughs> tricky and drumming moments. Oh, fan- fantastic. Anything you want to finish on with the Heartstopper, Andrew, before we move no, on? No, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, fantastic news to hear that Heartstopper's going for another two seasons. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. So the Essex Serpent, I mean, you said there was some overlap in production and is it hard juggling two things? Do you sort of have to segment your mind sometimes when you've got two projects on the go? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they're, they're very different projects and they, um, uh, they're, they're both projects that I've been involved in developing for, for many years before we were on uh, sets shooting them. I mean, Heartstopper was a little little more recent because we shot that in 2021, but we optioned it. I first read it uh, in 2018 and we optioned it in 2019. So it's a sort of period of, you know, a couple of years or so. But The Essex Serpent, which was a really hit book when it came out, I think 2015, 2016, and we'd optioned it at that time at Seesaw. So it's something that I've been living with the development of uh, for, for like a number of years, you know, like four plus years, five even. And so to have both of those shows being filmed at the same time was it was surreal. Um, and I think, yeah, required some juggling in terms of, you know, ping-ponging for, from the creative of, <laughs> of each, which had a certain kind of whiplash element at times because they're, they're very different shows. Um, but I think what unites them in the approach was that we had you know, a single director on each, on Heartstopper, Eros Lynn, and on the Essex Serpent, Clyde Bernard, and they're truly brilliant directors, real visionaries. And so they had the kind of the creative oversight of their of their shows in its entirety. And so that made that the, there was a consistency in how we were doing it and how we were approaching it, which was always to have that director-led focus. Um, yeah. Um, so I've been describing the Essex Serpent to people as kind of a modern gothic story. How do you pitch it? Uh, how were you pitching it when it was a new show and trying to explain to people what you wanted it to look like? Yeah, I think the fact that it's a it's a gothic Victorian kind of uh, drama, really. We wanted to find the beauty and strangeness in it which I think is such a feeling of reading the novel and when I first read the novel was just really striking is that it's it's such a kind of odd eerie beautiful in its wrongness kind of feel around the uh, the hysteria that's sweeping through this village but then at the same time it's got this kind of real kindness to it and the, the idea of love driving it both romantic love and platonic love often at the same time and in harmony um, meant that it, you know, it sort of, we wanted it to have a strange tone and we wanted it to feel really kind of uh, sort of not contemporary because that's a sort of strange way of describing something that's so period, but, but to feel kind of urgent and modern, I guess. I'm only a couple of episodes in so that. Oh yeah. So I'll ask this next question though. There's that, there's the two storylines for me. There's the actual investigating that the serpent down, down on the, I guess, the Essex is at the Moors or, or, or whatever mm. the correct word is. Then there's the, yeah. sur- the surgery, the sort of medical, um, what, do you, what do you call it, the medical breakthroughs that, 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 that happen. Do they, do they cross further in the show or, or are they two themes that are running through the book or...? 
I think they're linked in that you feel that the time of great change that they're in, whether that's kind of you know, religious change, scientific change, or this sense of kind of like a whole world that's now opening up uh, in terms of Victorian society, is really what's powering that, that uh, kind of fear and hysteria and unknowing that, that Cora finds when she goes to Aldwinter. So I always feel like what's happening in London is quite specifically linked to the environment that she finds when she goes to Essex um, because it's a sort of, it's a show about those unknowable things that we're frightened of and that, that, that those things that tend to be exacerbated when there's kind of uncertainty in the, in the wider world that we're in. And I think that's what makes it feel kind of relevant to the modern times we're in now is that people are kind of dealing with these huge seismic shifts in, 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 you know, who we are and what's happening to us. And with that kind of breeds a sort of sense of uh, fear and kind of uh, really rich psychological uh, terrain, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's quite a, quite a nebulous way of answering the question, <laughs> but I think, I think they're all linked. <laughs> so the character or the son of Claire Dane's character in it, you know, I've, been watching the first couple of episodes and thinking mm, there's something going on with him and I'm assuming that maybe he's on the spectrum but how interesting now when we talk about doing old stories but being told in a modern way I mean audiences are much more sophisticated and are able do you agree that maybe audiences today can pick up more on subtext than once a once upon a time when we didn't really talk about things like that? I mean, I hope so. I think that's the, that would be the, the great strength of The Essex Serpent is that it's a show that kind of revels in all of that subtextual intrigue, you know, and so you're going to enjoy it if you like those big questions that maybe don't have answers, but but the posing of the question is part of the fun. And, yeah, I think that Claire Danes' character and uh, son in, in it is, is giving a really great performance. And, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, just following on, that, could, could I ask you a little bit about the, the casting of, of, of uh, Claire Danes and Tom Hiddleston? I mean, again, mm -hmm. you know, br br brilliant um, actors to work with, much of, much of really helped the, this project along. But I think with the Claire Danes, I'm thinking this is the first series she probably committed to after Homeland, and I'm just yeah. wondering what she might have thought about committing to a series again because it must have been quite exhausting making Homeland because if you're a Homeland fan, what she went through in that series was was quite incredible. Totally. It was so exciting. When we knew that we had Claire Danes, it was just this feeling of euphoria because I'm like a huge Homeland fan and I also love my so-called life and, like, she's obviously just iconic in loads of roles that she's been in and to feel that she was our Cora and that she was going to come over from New York and, and tackle that role uh, on the kind of muddy Essex estuary uh, was just, it just felt entirely special. And uh, yeah, it was a tough shoot in, in, in a number of ways because it, a lot of it was on location and it was in kind of, you know, um, sort of muddy, cold environments, um, but she, she kind of came and gave it her all and I think gives such an extraordinary performance in, the, in that role. Um, and it's like a Claire Danes that you haven't seen before, which I think it may, you know, makes it feel special. And, yeah, it was a brilliant to get her. 
I, I agree with you. I've never seen Claire Danes look so beautiful in a project before. And maybe it's because all the background is so muddy and cold and fog seeping in. And here she's, there's just something very luminous about her in this show. 100%. She's brilliant and she kind of commands that, you know, when I've been lucky enough to be in the same space as her, she has this kind of magnetic quality where you kind of, your your eyes train on her and you go, wow, like, who is that person? And I think um, that is so much of the sort of feeling of the character of Cora on the page in the novel. So to feel like we had an actress with that, um, those capabilities and that talent, you know, I think she's such a brilliant Cora and it's, yeah, it's, it's great to have her in the role. And uh, Tom Hiddleston, now to me, and I might be wrong with this because I'm, I'm not a big superhero fan, but to, to me he's got those two careers. He's got the sort of Marvel superstar, if you like, and then you've got his yeah. other work, and this definitely falls into his other work, I guess. But he's, <laughs> yeah. he's equally successful at almost doing anything. Yeah, I think he's fantastic. I mean, he adores the novel of the Essex Serpent and he really was jumping at the chance to work with a director like Claire Bernard who is fantastic and her independent film uh, is is just kind of yeah brilliant and so he came with such a kind of uh, sense of sort of passion for the story wanting to really get to the bottom of the themes wanting to feel like he was giving a performance of kind of like uh, you know, authenticity and love for the character and the, and the character himself is really sort of kind and has this has this kind of crisis of faith, but that one that's motivated by like goodness and love. And so to see that conflict uh, on screen in an actor with Tom's abilities is, I find it really moving. So I think he just, he just absolutely with such precision shows this kind of this faith being tested, but in a really human and and open way. Tell me about whether or not you actually filmed on location or whether it was more studio. Because whenever I see anything set in English moors with mud and water and fog, I just think that must be bone chillingly cold. As an Aussie, you know, I always just have this visceral reaction to it and just think, oh my God, are they really making those actors stand in freezing cold water? Like how do you actually do those, those sorts of moments? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we, yeah, we were. So our, our director, Claire, had always wanted to spend as much of, um, uh, as much of the shoot as possible, especially for the exterior. Well, obviously the exterior is, you know, on location. And so that's what we did. And I think uh, that's why it has this sort of specific feel to it because we're actually, the actors are actually there and they're kind of, you know, feeding off the environment that we're putting them in. And yeah, from a practical point of view, that, that has its challenges. Uh, we had an amazing uh, producer, Andrea, who was... Uh, had by the end of it become an expert on tides and when the tides were up and when they were down because it affected how much you could film and, um, and how muddy and wet it was going to be and how possible anything was. And it was an absolute, like, yeah, precise science of, of, of making it all possible. It was, yeah, very complicated. Patrick, if I could throw the same question to you about the commissioning. So this is an Apple TV Plus series. So how yeah. did that happen? And 
as as a part of that as well, um, the actor's salaries aside, is it more expensive filming period than than a contemporary thing like um, Heartstopper? Yeah, I think period is is yeah is always more expensive because you're just getting every detail in terms of the production design and the costumes and all of that. Um, it, making them believable means it does cost more money. Um, in terms of the commissioning of it, uh, there's an amazing executive at um, Apple called Jay Hunt, and she uh, was a real fan of the novel. And so uh, came knocking at, at Seesaw saying, have you got the rights to this? And, um, and, and it was her passion, really, that, that located it as an Apple show, um, because they hadn't done much period, if, if any, I think, before we were in production with it. So it's certainly kind of a very specific show for them and it's driven by love of the source material and what it says. Um, so yeah, they've been great partners on it. Yeah. Um, where do you stand on the binging all your episodes in one sitting or dropping them weekly? So Essex Serpent is dropping weekly on Apple TV Plus. But yeah. Heartstopper was there to binge straight away. But just today I was reading that Netflix are looking at that model and going, gee, if we release all our episodes at once, everyone talks about it for one weekend and then they stop talking about it. So where do you as a producer, is each project different on how ideally it should be viewed or do you like that long conversation going on week to week about as each new instalment drops? I think it varies, yeah, from project to project. On something like Heartstopper, I really loved that it was just available all at once. You could watch all eight episodes through because I think of Heartstopper as like an eight-part movie in some ways in that it's supposed to kind of take you and make you feel super excited for this kind of romance story. And so the idea that people, as soon as it was available, they watched the whole thing through and then they had a short break and then watched rewatched it through again, uh, that really works for that show. Um, but for something like the Essex Serpent, I'm enjoying that it's building over uh, over the weeks that it's dropping on because uh, there's a kind of very specific, surprising love story that blossoms between Cora and Will, uh, the Claire Danes and Tom Hiddleston characters. And so seeing the internet react to that and going, oh, oh my God, in episode three, this happened between them. I wasn't expecting that. What's going to happen in episode four? that level of anticipation is really gratifying as a producer because, you know, we've sort of agonised about the pacing of that and when to deploy the romance in which episode. Um, so that really works for that show. Uh, but I don't have a hard and fast rule. I'm not like, oh, I absolutely want everything to drop all the time um, or, you know, weekly always. It, it sort of, yeah, you want to see what works for each show. And then just a couple of quick um, detail questions from me about about uh, the Essex Serpent. Um, the surgery scenes, wow. So, so, some of them are, are reasonably confronting. That, um, yeah. Is that hard? And, and, and do, you, do you need some specialist sort of um, tech people on working on those and sourcing some of what you were using, I guess? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they, I think they did a brilliant job. It is quite squeamish. I remember being in the edit on, on those sequences and going, oh, like, yeah, <laughs> myself. <laughs> was, was, uh, they, they pulled it off, I would say. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, some of the foggy days are brilliant. The, the, and I guess that was probably what early morning shoots. Did, did you have any weather delays? Did you, 
did you sometimes just go with what you had and, and you were lucky or did you have the luxury of being able to wait for what you wanted? Oh, no, I think, I mean, there were always, there was constant um, anxiety in the production around weather and whether that was tides in the in the marshlands of Essex needing the right kind of, you know, high tide or low tide, depending on what the scene is calling for. But even, even the, as much as the lighting, because it's such a kind of, specific place and the light hits in such specific ways there were times where you know you'd have to you'd be shooting one character and then the sun the sun would be going and then you're kind of um you're sort of screwed if, if you don't do it quickly enough so it was all of that all the time um i mean that that's quite usual and and what i would have expected but it was specific for the essex serpent because um the landscape played such a role in in how it was shot uh, that it was just really hard to avoid those those time crunch moments. Okay, look, and the last one from me, I'm I'm a bit of a train buff. The first time I saw a train, I thought, oh, wonder if that's, you know, if that's a bit of special, you know, SFX or something. Or But then when you see there's a scene where it pulls into the station, I'm thinking you actually had to rent a steam train, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How long did you have it? And we... I can't remember. I think it would have been a day or so. I, I okay. actually, I, can't, I don't know off the top of my head. But we also had a tube carriage and it was like a specific tube carriage that I think is in a museum that, that they use, but it would have been exactly like it was. And so that sort of sense of like diving into the history, you know, when you're talking trains, for example, usually there's like, you're lucky if there's one train that you can use. And, and so it's often used for shoots of that, of that kind. Uh, so, yeah, there's a whole kind of subculture of getting that, those details exactly right. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Andrew? Well, yeah, you've got to get those train details right because train nuts were, <laughs> are, are better train spotters than anything else on TV. I'm out of questions, James. Are we... Yeah, look, um, look we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up, Patrick, but just give us a... Ha- how many projects? Because these are all long-term things. Have you got a, have you got a sort of to-do list of maybe half a dozen things at all different stages? What? How, how do you work it? Yeah, that's usually how it works. I mean, so I work within Seesaw, and there's lots of kind of creative people doing their own things, and I have my own slate there of, of shows that are in all different kind of stages of development. Um, probably working on somewhere like up to kind of between five and 10 active developments where you're trying to push things forward, whether that's writing the first episode or writing subsequent episodes after your pilot, um, whether they're with a broadcaster or you're going to pitch to a broadcaster. There's lots of different things that, that take your um, time and focus sort of in a, in a reactive way. Um, but, yeah. What, what could we – are you able to say what we'll be dropping next from, from you? Oh, well, I think with the – I mean, boringly, the answer is what I've mentioned is seasons two and three of Heartstopper, which is going to take up quite a lot of my time, I think, over the next year or two. Okay. Um, so that's the immediate concern for me. Great. All right. Look, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. We um, we both enjoy your uh, work very much. So um, oh, thank keep, you. keep it up and we'll, like, I guess we'll be watching out for him, Andrew, next year at the uh, different award shows because I'm sure um, at the very least these two shows are going to feature somehow. Oh, wow. Fingers crossed. Good luck. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. It's really nice to talk to you.